0: We've now got uh, a panel with um, Verity and Hans. Um, the Verity's come from the University of Melbourne. At uh, Monash. Oh, Monash, sorry. From mm-hmm. uh, for, uh, for Monash uh, today. And um, uh, and we'll hear about um, ecotopianism as so well. So, and we'll have a discussion afterwards. So okay, thanks, very, James. Right, okay, well, in the. Um Second half of this paper, I'll be talking about international labour movement um, actions and responses uh, to climate change in the 21st century. In the first half of the paper, I want to deal with what I describe as the, the problem of ignoring labour at the planet's peril the potential power of labour to confront greenhouse gas emitters and polluters generally is too frequently discounted or at least overlooked. Not in this room, I'm glad to say. Um, If you go back to when awareness of the global warming problem or the greenhouse effect, as it was first called, sort of kind of hit public consciousness in the late 80s, early 90s, this coincided, unfortunately, with the postmodern moment in academia. Amongst those who debated issues of transition, there was rather hegemonic new social movement theory that denigrated the labour movement for being incapable of offering opposition to the growth paradigm and so on. The labour movement was seen as part of the problem, not part of the solution, definitely not the midwife of history anymore. I remember in the mid-1990s, an academic colleague of mine who, like me, taught students about social movements, Referring to class as an outmoded category. Uh, I think it was ironic that just as global corporations embarked on a huge global assault on workers across the planet, hugely exacerbating economic inequalities everywhere, academics were busy debating the death of class. Um, Ulrich Beck expresses this postmodern mood in his iconic book, The Risk Society, in 1992. He gives an example of a lead crystal factory dropping flecks of arsenic on the nearby town of Altenstadt in Germany. And instead of possibly considering that the workers in the factory could be called upon to cease working until the emissions ceased, till the factory cleaned up its act, he says the solution was for hazards like this to become scandalous through dissenting voices, alternative experts who would provide discursive checking in the crossfire of opinions. But if, if you lived in Altenstadt, would you prefer to rely on the workers stopping, working there, or discursive checking? Uh, and I think there's st- still a tendency to assume that unions, workers will not act in defence of the environment because they're into a productivist logic that wants um, development of any sort in the interest of job creation. Um, Tony Maher of the CFMEU, the union that employs the Australian workers most um, responsible, if you like, for creating greenhouse gas emissions, has uh, referred to this problem of the the sort of the the pro-bashing response of, uh, you know, including green activists. There are very good reasons, as we know, for working class people and poorer people to be even more concerned about the environment than the rest of us. It's not only between countries but within countries that there's an inverse correlation between complicity in causing climate change and suffering its consequences. This is already evident in the playing out of emergency situations. Uh, Naomi Klein describes the divide in New Orleans in September 2005 when Katrina hit. The economically secure drove out of town in their gas gas, gas, gas guzzling SUVs, checked into hotels and called their insurance companies. The 120,000 people without cars, who depended on the state to organise their evacuation, waited for help that did not arrive. And the everyday experience of a warming planet, we know will not be endured equally either for the rich will weather the consequences better, though not completely. They'll buy their way out of unsafe or unpleasant environments with more heatproof proof housing, greater ability to pay increased prices for water, food and other essentials, greater access to medical care for heat-related illnesses, relocation to cooler or higher areas, whereas poorer people, whether they live in developing or developed countries, will have fewer options, yet have contributed least to global warming. This is the, um, the two injustices that um, that we need to be um, mindful of. The primary injustice is the one I've just mentioned. But the secondary injustice, which unions and workers are also particularly concerned with, is that climate change mitigation also disproportionately adversely affects poorer people, for example, workers in fossil fuel industries. So. There is this problem, however, that workers in these industries and unions representing these workers, their position is often willfully misrepresented by the employers, who, for obvious reasons, want to, um, you know, are interested in you know business as usual by politicians, um, and even, unfortunately, by some green groups. If you consider again the case of the CFMEU, it was. Peter Colley, its researcher in 1992, who wrote one of the first union publications on climate change anywhere in the world, and this was the the ACTU's um, 32-page booklet, The Greenhouse Effect. And, you know, I mean, for the time, it's an extraordinarily prescient publication, and if that vision had been implemented back then, imagine how far in advance Australia would have been in terms of climate change mitigation. But who was in government? Paul Keating. So, nothing happened to that ACTU official vision of how to respond to the climate crisis. And it called on union members to make greenhouse issues part of regular union activities and to work with environment groups to help develop their awareness of the importance of unions in combating the problem. Uh, In 1997, the the CFMEU supported ratification of the Kyoto Protocol, saying that the reasons for not ratifying it were, quote, spurious at best and more likely just plain lies. And it argued for social justice to be a key consideration in development of climate change responses. But out there, there was this strong impression that, of course, the CFMEU would be against ratification of the Kyoto Protocol, but that just wasn't the case. And uh, in 2007, for example, the union funded a multi- a million-dollar advertisement to refute, quote, the falsehood that climate change in action protects jobs. Nothing could be further from the truth. And it ran this ad on television stations in mining areas for the 2007 election. It featured hard-hatted employees saying, protect our jobs and communities. Choose a government that's serious about climate change. And it goes on and on and on, just to give you some idea of of the programmatic statements that this greenhouse gas emitting union continues to make about the dangers of climate change and the need to move away from uh, a dependence on fossil fuels, but nonetheless integrating the concerns and capacities of working people in order to cope with the climate crisis in a way that is just and fair for, for working people global warming responses that don't have a strong social justice component will exacerbate disadvantage and so on. Now, Tony Ma, the secretary, has reflected on the peculiar position that the workers in that union find themselves, that they are killing the planet. But he says, our members are sick of being demonised and seen only as part of the problem. They are proud of the fact that the union is positioning miners as being part of the solution. There was a 2007 survey of CFMEU members. It showed that half of them felt victimised by anti-coal groups. So, I think it's really important that environmentalists don't provide a green echo of mainstream narratives about workers only caring about jobs at all costs. Um, There's also a problematic, widely held assumption that workers should only care about jobs and that was expressed in mainstream media and commentary when the construction workers organised in the Builders' Labourers Federation, especially the New South Wales branch, imposed industrial bans in defence of environment and heritage during the famous green bans movement of the 1970s. Um, More than 40 green bans were imposed. Half of these... um, Prevented ecological destruction or destruction of heritage uh, in whole suburbs. For example, uh, the rocks, which was saved from looking like this by a green ban. So instead of this you know, developer's nightmarish uh, vision being realised, uh, we have the rocks as we know it today. But an attitude commonly expressed at the time was that. What business was it of workers to say what should and shouldn't be built and where and how? Whereas the union argued that there was no greater wrong existed than that the powerful few should spoil the environment of the powerless many. So there are clear parallels in the climate change period. The union was mindful of working class interests in restraining ecologically damaging development because workers suffered disproportionately from environmental problems. Uh, Jack Mundy who led the movement stressed that workers more than other sections of the community had to put up with all the problems besetting cities such as pollution because they lived in the least desirable localities, the least leafy areas. So it made sense for workers to link up with those involved in ecology. Um, But academic observers echoed the usual prejudice. Uh, They said that the link between the workers and the resident activists and the National Trust and so on uh, didn't make sense, that it was an unlikely collaboration, an unholy alliance, that it was surprising, that it was likely to be short-lived. Just to quote from commentators. It wasn't short-lived. By 1975 the bands had stalled $5,000 million dollars of development at 1970's prices. Petra Kelly who founded the Greens party in Germany, visited Sydney during the Green Bans period and was so impressed by this alliance of workers and environmentalists that she took the terminology of green back to Germany and that's why she called her party the Greens and from that moment the word green enters the world's political lexicon. It comes from working class action in defence of the environment. So what about ecotopian thinkers? Like Beck, often the ecotopian imagination is unreceptive to the potential of labour movements to bring about significant social change towards an egalitarian and sustainable green future. Um, There's a a book currently uh, about to go to press written by Andrew Milner and James Bergman on climate change fiction. And not one of the 200 uh, novels, short stories, films and television series examined in this study, mentions, imagines, depicts the working class as an ecological actor in the transition to ecotopia. There's a similar absence in philosophical ecotopianism. I'll give you just one example of a, you know, a wonderful thinker, Ted Trainer. His vision of the simpler way is almost certainly more or less exactly what we need in the future. Obviously, we need to have a more autarkic, a a simpler uh, way of living to um, preserve resources. He talks too about the importance of um, people being conscientious, caring, responsible citizens. I'm not keen about coming to working bees. Yeah, a strong collectivist outlook. Of course, it's all wonderful. It's exactly what we what we need. But, and this is the problem that I have with um, you know all these wonderful fanciful pictures in the air of um, of the future, of ecotopia or eco-socialism is. Is it an adequate politics of transition? Uh, Can capitalist society be changed bit by bit by building up new cooperative forms of ecological living within the shell of the old? Or is rupture necessary? Eric Olin Wright's book on envisioning real utopias talks about ultimately the necessity of challenge and confrontation. not just collaborative problem-solving, that if you're realistic about a project of social empowerment, then you have to work out how to force the issue. So the climate justice movement needs to include not only a map of ecotopia, but an action plan for getting there. What agent in society has the power to force systemic, wholesale change? Now, Ariel Soler... Is Ariel here? Okay, um, she urges the significance of the meta-industrial labour class, peasants, mothers, fishers and gatherers, who meet everyday needs for the majority of people on earth and whose reproductive modes of economic provisioning already practise precaution and sustainability. I think Ariel's case is premised on the decline of the traditional proletariat, but it isn't declining. Uh, The industrial workforce is growing hugely globally at the expense of peasants, mothers, fishers and gatherers drawn into wage labor by the ravages of globalization, leaving no other nexus but callous cash payment. For example, during the 1980s, 150 million Chinese migrated from rural to urban areas to work in factories opened up by global corporations. China now contains the largest working class in capitalism's history. Uh, The Delhi Industrial Belt has also turned peasants, mothers and fishers into industrial workers. Um, My uh, recent book details the extent to which the global working class is growing. Not only that, but collective organisation of workers is also growing globally because of what's happening in developing countries. So, when we think about, oh, you know, the labour movements disappearing, that's a very uh, developed country-centric way of of imagining the world. Moreover, any power that the meta-industrial labour class could exert by withdrawing labour would mainly affect their nearest and dearest, whereas the power wielded by the traditional proletariat withdrawing its labour directly imperils profit. Now, I've already spoken of the particular interest of the working class in environmental protection, but we also need to stress the capacity to do so. And in the green bans movement, the union not only imposed bans, but also threatened to withdraw labour from projects other than the disputed ones. And this is how the very first green ban came about, was that builders labourers on a North Sydney office block being built by the same company that wanted to demolish Kelly's bush, Sent this telegram to the developers, which was how Kelly's Bush was saved. And the Green Bands movement started, and so on. The union also defended its green bands on picket lines and at demonstrations supported enthusiastically by the resident activists who were radicalised by the union's green bands. And this was a period when Marcuse was all the rage. But this action persuaded many in the New Left at the time that perhaps the working class could be an agent of change after all, Um, because they saw the green bands movement utilising the collective power of workers at the point of production. That action created havoc, it polarised society and governments were obliged to respond to this industrial challenge and bring in laws to protect environment and heritage and the culture of town planning also changed. Environmentalists couldn't have achieved that without that industrial action. And that was acknowledged in the journalistic metaphors at the time. The union was typically depicted as the muscle um, the trust and resident groups lacked the teeth that the union had. It even won over people who hated unions, as this letter to the New South Wales BLF of Office indicates. Now, elsewhere in the world, a couple of decades later, a study of red and green movements in Taiwan and South Korea in the late 1990s and early this century came to the same conclusion. And here um, Hua Jin Liu talks about the power of organised labour obviously resting on its role in production and delivery. Um, The power of the environmental movement is essentially uh, ideological and the South Korean and Taiwanese environmental movements found that there were severe limits to what they could achieve with mere ideological power and they did some interviews with these activists about how they felt this powerlessness and how they needed to, they had found that they needed to connect up with labour movements in order to achieve anything. So Lou concludes that labour and environmental movements have been travelling toward each other. So what's been going on in terms of international labour and climate change? Well, to look first at the, the just transition concept, which was DEVELOP first talked about in the 1990s, it was articulated in this Canadian Labor Congress um, uh, policy document and it's really focusing in on that, that secondary injustice, that mitigation disproportionately affects workers and so on unless you develop policies to solve that problem. Um, and this has become really a leitmotif of international labour in terms of sort of the pronouncements and policy declarations at the institutional level, as we can see, and I'll just run through some of these developments. Um, the Trade Union Confederation, at its founding conference in 2006, uh, talked about... The Three Pillars of Sustainable Development, Economic, Social and Environmental. The document in 2008 explicitly looking at unions and climate change. Climate change raises important questions. Stressed the importance of unions engaging in climate negotiations. Uh, Again, in 2008, a green and fair future for a just transition to a low carbon economy. The British Trade Union Congress, this is just an example of how it gets taken up at, at nation-based level in the, in the union movements there. Um, the, an example from home, the Australian Metal Workers Union, also uh, delineating its commitment to just transition, to ensure climate change doesn't disadvantage workers and an express uh, denunciation of the problem of letting market forces determine things. Back to the International Trade Union Confederation, describing what just transition means. And finally, in um, 2010, It um, came up with this resolution on combating climate change through sustainable development and just transition. And finally, that um, position articulated in this document was recognised by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in 2010, and governments agreed to incorporate the just transition concept into the decisions after a lobbying campaign by the International Trade Union Confederation. So, obviously these moves are concerned with allocating the costs of climate change mitigation fairly. Now, at a more grassroots level internationally, we have the interesting um, emergence of the network called Trade Unions for Energy Democracy. This is an international network that was formed in 2012. It now comprises 64 trade union bodies from 24 countries in both the global north and south. Um, In just 2018 alone, so far, 560,000 members or unions representing 560,000 members have joined. It's growing all the time. This was how Canada's National Union of Public and General Employees that joined in September uh, explained why they were joining this network. So it's it's a continually growing network, it's um, financially sustained by the Rosa-Luxemburg-Stiftung, uh, which was originally located in New York but is now re- relocated in Berlin, and since its launch in 2012, Trade Unions for Energy Democracy has argued that mainstream voices are wrong to claim or imply that the transition to a sustainable energy system based on renewable sources is happening and can happen without a radical change of course. It says, as a movement we need a programmatic shift, one that asserts a pro-public and needs-based approach to meeting the climate crisis and achieving a just transition and that can challenge business as as usual. Its motto is resist, reclaim, restructure, which it calls its approach, and that emerged from dissatisfaction with the neoliberal green growth narrative promoted by IMF, World Bank, corporations, and so on, and here it articulates its resist, reclaim, restructure uh, philosophy and strategy. Um, It points to the growing momentum around the concept of just transition and how it's been taken up by a wide range of voices from indigenous and grassroots communities to major institutions such as the International Labour Organization and acknowledged by the UN in 2010. Um, And it argues that that momentum provides an opportunity for unions to broaden the Perspective beyond social dialogue, because a growing number of unions internationally are recognizing that the struggle for energy democracy has a crucial role to play in the struggle for civilizational survival. And as it's said recently, um, it's talking about systemic change, a transition based on meeting human needs, respecting natural limits, but integrating workers-focused concerns into this program for transformation. I'll just give you some examples of what's going on in particular countries in this network. In South Africa, there's an unfortunate lineup of a coal-dependent public power utility called ESCOM that's engaged in confrontation with private renewable energy interests. the National Union of Metalworkers of South Africa and the South African Federation of Trade Unions that are affiliated to Trade Unions for Energy Democracy have crafted a clear response to this problematic situation that calls for the radical restructuring of ESCOM and social ownership of the renewable sector as well. So their opposition to capitalist capture of renewable energy and their support for a socially owned and democratic alternative. In the UK, it's the Trade Unions for Energy Democracy there that's been influential in the development of the 2017 Labour Party manifesto commitment to reclaim the country's energy system back to public democratic control. In mid-February this year, all of the UK's major unions attended a Trade Unions for Energy Democracy meeting and that was also attended by European unions and parties such as De Linca and Podemos. Uh, in June this year, another meeting was convened by TUED in Sheffield, attended by the key UK unions, as well as the Trade Union Congress, uh, and so on. And it's... it's, it's it, I mean, Corbyn-Labour is really, really indebted to Trade Unions for Energy Democracy for its, um, you know, tackling the, the problem programmatically at last. In uh, South America, in October this year, there was a meeting convened by the Trade Union Confederation of the Americas um, with representatives from 15 South American countries um, and it discussed how to oppose the predatory and repressive actions of mining and drilling companies across the continent. This is another TUED initiative. And unanimous support was expressed for the principles of Deprivatise, democratise, and decommodify. And um, it came out with this statement. So you can see definitely a, a post capitalist agenda um, embedded, implied at least, in, the, in, in these um, proclamations. So finally, um, What are the prospects for the working class to act to protect the planet? Well, there is increasing discussion in these circles about the need for green bans to fight climate change. And I'm often contacted by people in all sorts of places around the world, like just a few weeks ago, a trade union activist in Iceland, concerned about, you know, climate change might benefit Iceland. (laughs) you um, know asking me about how did they actually do it? How did it start? What was the, the trigger? And this is a very important question. There are of course, horrible negative role models, just for a moment to think about the disaster of the American unions that have supported this um, Keystone pipeline, the laborers, the operating engineers, the plumbers and pipe fitters, and the teamsters. Um, The convener of Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, Sean Sweeney, has written a lot about how to oppose what he calls, what they call, carbon unionism. As indeed other American unions did, but that's generally not known. These are the uh, unions against support for the pipeline. Making a very, very obvious point that it's just absolute nonsense to say, oh, you've got to build the pipeline because workers want jobs. What jobs? You know, there are plenty of good jobs to provide instead. So, the guiding principle of the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation that underpinned its Green Band actions was the concept of the social responsibility of labour. That workers have a right to insist that their labour is not used in harmful ways. And this is the extraordinary statement that they came out with. we will not just become robots directed by developer builders who value the dollar at the expense of the environment. Was it utopian of them to imagine that they should be anything other than such robots? Well, perhaps. But in the context of the global warming problem, this principle of the social responsibility of labour becomes absolutely crucial. And what are the prospects in the present of such a movement? So it might help to use an ecologically unsound metaphor and drill down into the Green Bands movement to try to understand the potential for such a movement again in the future. Why did the builders' labourers become ecological actors? Well, it happened slowly and gradually. From the mid-1960s, the union became increasingly concerned with matters of town planning. It started to criticise the boom in office block development, the buildings that they were building, and they came to start to plead instead for the construction of socially useful projects. Uh, They came out with this statement in 1971. Then, a couple of years later, the union attempted to have a claim inserted into the National Building Industry Award stipulating that 60% of the building industry's resources had to be diverted into construction of public amenities such as hospitals, kindergartens, crèches, and houses to channel resources away from building useless office buildings which presently stand idle in all major cities and use our limited resources in the public interest. Now because the builders labourers were questioning the products of their own labour this had a ripple radicalising effect on the movement around them buildings for need, not greed, and so on. People before profits, the slogan of the Green Bands Movement. And in this questioning of the products of their own labour, this is Jack Mendes saying too few people question the products we make, there are obvious parallels in the climate change period where you have to make the case for green jobs rather than brown ones and never doing brown ones and so on. It was the role of builders' labourers within the industry that had heightened their awareness of damage and destruction. Another leader of the movement, Joe Owens, um, said, ordinary builders' labourers are the ones who break the ground when this public vandalism takes place. So perhaps I'm trying to see the possibilities for a similar process of alienation to occur amongst workers expected to build new hazel woods or even to continue working at them and therefore to take that important leap from radical consciousness to militant industrial action. I think you can see this beginning in the increasing concern in communities such as the Latrobe Valley and the Hunter about the pollution of their communities and what it's like to live near a coal mine, let alone work in one. And, of course, the fire at Hazelwood a couple of years ago, uh, really, really, um, you know, started people thinking. As a Labor historian, I'm reminded of a a famous study, um, John Foster's class struggle and and the Industrial Revolution, that found that the Lancashire cotton workers' experience in the early 19th century of overproduction and competition in their industry was significant in forming their anti-capitalist attitudes and their industrial militancy. And this is, also, this is at a time when unionism was illegal, when collective organisation was considerably more under siege even than at present. So I suppose, you know, looking back into the past is helpful. However dire things might look for labour at any point in time, there are always cycles of struggle and cycles of militancy. And certainly in developing countries, labour is on the rise again. So, to look into the future, I think you need to to think about such things and as we build a better world, um, don't overlook the potential power of labour to force the issue by refusing to work in polluting greenhouse gas emitting industries. Thank you.